you're Walmart, if you're New York Life, you know, MetLife, whatever insurance company, those companies were never started with the ambition of building a data center. You know, no one ever started any business in their right mind to think, I need a building full of hardware and software and cooling and power. That's what we really is going to make us stand out from the crowd. However, over time, of course, the applications, the business logic, you know, how you run the business using that functionality is core to your business. But the underlying stuff never was. Well, today we return to the Founders Series, which is a series we started during the summer where I interview founders of technology companies and explore the environment and opportunities that brought their businesses to life and where they are today. Now, in today's conversation, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Pontus Norin, co-founder of CloudReach. Pontus is bright, brilliant, and engaging, and I think you're really going to enjoy hearing his journey. The line between application and infrastructure is virtually invisible in these modern apps. The kind of thing that a global computing fabric with immense resilience and scale can deliver without even breaking a sweat. That's really what the promise of the cloud's always been. It's all focused on the business objectives. That's where we craft the plan. In the tech world, we like to celebrate the lone genius, but I'm just going to tell you right now, they're just the convenient face as founders to focus on. Welcome to Cloud Talk. Here's your host, Jeff Diverter. So the year is, is 2017, Q1 of 2017. And, uh, and you've got some paperwork in your hands. Uh, the company that you have founded uh, with your partners um, has grown to the point that it's gotten some attention by private equity, and you have a choice to make. And there you are. Do you sell your company? What's going through your brain at this point? <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's it's one of those things, you know, we, we had a, a conversation with other people as well at the, at the same time. And uh, what I did realize that we had grown the business to, Around about $80 million run rate uh, annualized uh, in terms of gross revenues. And we had 250 staff, et cetera. And it had been more or less bootstrapped to that point. And there comes the point when a company really needs cash if you want to keep growing it as it does. So it really needed some proper investments. And, you know, Blackstone provides a fantastic platform for that. And, um, yeah, in the end, it was an easy choice to, to, to an extent, even though, you know, it does feel strange to, uh, you know, when selling a majority, handing over the, the real decision-making reins, I guess, to, to other people of something you've created literally from scratch. That's incredible. But maybe we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Let's, uh, let's rewind the story just a little bit and, and talk about how, how you ended up in that chair at that point in time. So maybe back to, to school, your education. Let's, let's work through the career to the point that you start a company. Yeah, it's interesting, Jeff. I mean, some of these things are clearly coincidental in, in, in some ways. You know, when I, when I went to uh, what was kind of early secondary school, I guess you could call it, in, in rural Sweden, um, about two and a half hour drive west of Stockholm, the, the capital, uh, in the mid eighties. You know, my my school, uh, I would have been in year six or seven, was one of three only in the entire country that offered computer science as an extracurricular, and I really kind of fell into it. I was fascinated by the whole thing, and uh, luckily my my parents could afford a, a Commodore sixty four. They also had the ability, not just at school, but also at home, to. Um, 
you know, explore the, the incredible world of computers, which, you know, back then was pretty niche, uh, let's say. Um, but what it did is it opened up my eyes, not just to the gaming piece and the, everything as you do as a young kid, but I started writing basic and, and stuff in terms of programming and then some assembler and so on that, that again, kind of really opened up my eyes uh, around this. And, you know, over the next eight years or so throughout my kind of high school, college to A-levels, if you say in the UK, all the way into university, I had a very computer science uh, and kind of scientific focus on my on my studies. And I ended up graduating with a Bachelor of Science degree from the Royal University of Stockholm in in 95. And from then on, I, I joined a, a software division within the within the Ericsson, the, um, the gigantic Swedish telecoms business. Yeah. Interesting. So computers from a very early age were similar in that context. My father was a, um, was a lifer with IBM and we had the, the PC in the house from the earliest, I guess, early 83, I guess is, is when that showed up. But um, yeah, it opened up a whole interesting world uh, of the possibility of what you could actually do. So, so off you go to university, you, you come out working for a pretty large company. And, uh, but we're, we're still missing some connect the dots on how you end up starting your own company while working for a, you know, a massive telecommunications company. Yeah. I mean, my, my first few years in Ericsson was really on the product side and you know, system testing, uh, product management, et cetera, and some product marketing, which eventually led me to move to Germany where I worked for Nokia for a few years, more in the product marketing stroke sales function and arriving in the UK now, 20 years ago in late 2000, um, working in pure sales roles for Peregrine Systems, did an MBA and went on to work for Cisco uh, here in the UK. And, you know, towards the end there, so to speak, for me, uh, in the spring of 2008, you know, I spent the last 13 years in the IT industry from being what really were the boom years of the 90s to 2008. And this is just before the big financial crash that happened in the because that was in the autumn of 2008. But in the spring of 2008, I remember going to a customer meeting uh, out in, in, the, in the industrial park here on the west side of London, you know, classic London morning. It was uh, pouring down with rain. It was generally quite miserable. And I walked into the meeting and we were negotiating the annual contract of maintenance for the software that runs on Cisco switches and routers. And the procurement manager just said to me, I want this to be $4 million next year, not five. And I said, why? And he said, because it's just maintenance, right? What do we really get for this? And he pushed me very hard on the value uh, around, you know, essentially software maintenance. And I think that really was the moment when the penny dropped for me, thinking the IT industry, we're spending an awful lot of time doing simple upgrades and changes and, and really paying a lot of money for maintenance. And it's no longer a value-driven activity. You know, it had been earlier you know, in the two, early 2000s or in the 90s, when you built everything out from scratch, it really changed the company to have a, a general email system available to communicate, you know, a finance system to, to make, you know, closing the books a lot easier. These things were real game changers. By the time you get to 2008, it no longer was. It was just a, a black hole where, you know, the CFO poured money into, quite frankly, uh, was, was IT. And, and, of course, that's where you saw the advent of big outsourcing contracts and everything where, you know, the, the aim was pure and simple. Let's cut down costs as much as we can. And by 2008, well, this was to the bone, right? And a lot of organizations had lost their internal IT department um, to, to outsourcing contracts, quite frankly. And 
And uh, yeah, I got, I got this solution, <laughs> to be quite honest. <laughs> I, I seriously considered leaving the industry altogether at that point. Wow, incredible. Um, yeah, it was a, a challenging time, 2008. Yeah, that's, we had a big economic crash, and that, was, that you know, added to, the, I think, the pain of you know, not just how to, I don't see the value, let's lower the cost, but now everybody you know, had financial pressures as well. And so that, that pushed on it as well. It wasn't a fun time. It was not a fun time. It wasn't a fun time, right? And, and today, of course, I work with, with new startups. We, we have a, an equally not so fun time right now, of course, in, in the whole world with a, with a pandemic. But, you know, I, I went off and started to do some research around what is really happening in the IT industry. And in some dark, murky corners, I found this word cloud pop up here and there. You know, the definition of SaaS, PaaS and IaaS, et cetera, you know, it was another two years before that arrived, I think, in 2010. So this really was early days. But the whole thinking around utility-based pricing and access and scaling things up and down, really, and, and taking away some of the heavy lifting that the companies were doing um, back in those days to run IT, really appealed to me. And as and when the crash happened and we arrived early 2009, there's some you know, on the personal level, scary thinking around going off and starting a, your own business when you are in a, in a well, you know, relatively well-paid job. Equally, I always felt that these big changes bring opportunity because, you know, you have the, 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 the sports uh, old adage of never change a winning team, right? And that applies in business too. But when things, where the chips are down and things are not going well, changes are on the agenda, right? What can we change to turn this around? So if you have a new proposition, a new way of thinking, a new way of working, and cloud really is a fundamental change to IT, as we now know, but wasn't as clear back then, now was the time, right? That a lot of people were, in some cases, forced to the change, but also, I think, open to change in, in many ways. Yeah. yeah. So what was the opportunity you saw? So so the, the word cloud means more than an atmospheric event. Um, people are starting to to do more with this utility thing, and you have a spark of an idea. Uh, and it wasn't just you. I mean, you pulled a partner into the into the mix as well. Yeah, I mean, interesting enough, I had seen it in in the late nineties. Uh, my role in Nokia was in, uh, involved in working with Remedy, which is a business that was no longer exists. But they came up with a, a platform called ARS, which was a way of configuring and building workflow application, which is what we were doing. And I went to a bunch of user conferences, came across businesses that had been started around the, the emerging M Remedy ecosystem. So people that sold the licenses, did consulting, did manage services, et cetera. And as a business model within the world of IT, you know, that's clearly is very workable. And in, in the very beginning, uh, early part of January 2009, Google announced a reseller program around Google Apps. And my wife had joined Google, actually, here in the UK as the second lawyer outside of the United States joining Google back in 2004. So through her eyes, I had a, a, um, some insight, I guess, into what's, what's going on within Google as well. So when this came out, I guess I felt confident that there's enough power and execution behind something like this, that this could be a potential opportunity to start a new business. Because, of course, back then you know, in a different way than today, Google and Microsoft were in other kinds of fights, I guess. And, you know, partners aligned to the Microsoft ecosystem on Exchange and uh, Active Director and all that, you know, they wouldn't really jump on a Google bandwagon early on. So I thought this may be the opportunity for a brand new business in a brand new ecosystem, similar to the Remedy setup and ARS back in the 90s. 
and in, in exploring that, um, you know, a, a friend of mine had been working within a big um, uh, operator here in the UK using Google's platform as a kind of service provider email environment. So he had a lot of technical depth and expertise around the Google ecosystem. And, and, uh, and yeah, he, uh, he decided to join the, um, join the merry band of cloud, <laughs> cloud enthusiasts. And, and that, was the, uh, that was the starting point. That was the starting point. So, so what year did you have your first customer? Well, three months later, we signed our first client. Um, and it's a kind of a funny story because we starting a new business and becoming a Google apps reseller was not as straightforward as we first thought. And um, we did a pilot with a, it was a, a personal connection. Someone was a director of a business who had acquired um, a few different foreign, foreign exchange businesses. And each of them came with their own email platform and everything. So they wanted to consolidate onto one. So we did a pilot first where we transferred 50 users onto Google Apps um, uh, or G Suite. It was then now it's called Workspace, of course. And, uh, and the pilot went really well. And to get 50 libraries was pretty easy. Now, they had 500 users, so just under 471, I think. So I had to acquire another 321 licenses from Google. And when I called Google back, they said, no, you need a proper company to be a real reseller. So we had to go through a few things to make that happen. And then I eventually got in touch with a salesperson. I said, look, I, I have a company here with just under 500 license users. We need another 300 and, or 420 licenses. Yeah. And he said, who are you? <laughs> I was like, well, this is who we are and what we're trying to do. And, and he, he couldn't believe it, right? And from me coming from the Cisco world, where you know, we regularly did multi-million dollar contracts, you know, this was worth for Google maybe 25 grand, right? And yeah. I thought, of course, in my naivety that why would they care about us? I wanted to find out, I think those are the top three deals, one of the top three deals that quarter at Google in Europe. And I'd call them up with like nine days to go. So that, if that's not a definition of a bluebird. I'm not sure what it is. That's, so, that's really, awesome. <laughs> so it was a funny story. And of course, that, um, that got us into the Google ecosystem pretty quickly that we proved we can go out and find a brand new client with 500 users. You know, that was a big deal for Google and uh, Google Apps G Suite workspace call it what you like and in the summer of 2009 right uh, and so then and then time goes on and you acquire more customers you get some more people to start helping you uh, and it's it's the business it's it's building it's growing it's exactly what you were thinking it would be mm. but that but that 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 word cloud reared its head and started to change its definition and more players started to, to jump into the mix and and you you eventually get to a point where AWS is now knocking on your door tell us Walk us through that little change in trajectory. Yeah, I mean, interesting enough, um, that happened not so late, long after the, the actual move to Google, uh, becoming a Google partner and, and, and a reseller, because it was clear back today is obviously different. But in the summer of 2009, Google Apps, G Suite didn't offer much beyond kind of you move people on and there you have your entire environment. It's all activated. It's one fee for everything the Google can provide, et cetera. And, you know, having a business development background, I know how hard it is to acquire customers and, and getting in the, on the inside of an organization. So the thinking was, what else could we do for the organization once they had moved to Google Apps? And, you know, you have companies like ServiceNow and Eloqua and Workspace, uh, Workday, sorry. They existed back then, but were tiny, right? Plus, and Salesforce were the big beast. And they had a, were in a, an established ecosystem. And that was very kind of SaaS focused, of course, to do on a much on a different level. 
And we thought, man, you need to have almost sector expertise to do workday around HR or Salesforce around you know, CRM, et cetera. And is that really the problem to solve? And we looked at it, thought about it long and hard and decided, you know what, that doesn't feel right. And in doing more research, I guess, realized, you know, what I say, my, my story today is to say, look, if you're a retailer, if you're Walmart, if you're um, Sears, or if you're uh, New York Life, you know, MetLife, whatever insurance company, you know, those companies were never started with the ambition of building a data center. You know, no one ever started any business in their right mind to think, I need a building full of hardware and software and cooling and power. That's what we really, it's going to make us stand out from a crowd. However, over time, of course, the applications, the business logic, you know, how you run the business using that functionality is core to your business, but the underlying stuff never was. So, you know, we start looking around thinking, what is the cloud answer to that problem? And my business partner had experience from building and running data centers in his earlier life. So, so he had firsthand experiences how painful that could be in those days. And looking around um, the market, um, and I, I know this is a Rackspace sponsored podcast, but no one really had the answer in, my, in our view, apart from Amazon Web Services. And mm-hmm. as I said, we came across a retailer from Seattle. And I say the tongue in cheek, of course, today Amazon Web Services is a, is a giant, but back then they employed a few hundred people. And in contacting Amazon's office, not Amazon Web Services, Amazon's office, because Amazon Web Services didn't have an office officially in the UK. And we eventually, after some pain, got through to a person who represented Amazon Web Services in the UK. This was September 2009. And he was the only person working for Amazon Web Services UK. And he'd been there Incredible. for he only been there for two or three months at a time, Ian Gavin. And, um, and we became, we signed up, became partners. And uh, I always mention this, uh, the only way to sign up as a partner back then was to download a PDF, complete it, sign it by hand and fax it back to Amazon. That is still the contract that governs the Amazon private relationship today, dated, I think it's 13 or 16th of September, 2009. Faxed, the only fax we ever sent as a business. So, so you've got that. So you've got that story to hold over their head of maybe it wasn't always about the technology. <laughs> well, I think it is and was, but back then it was quite less sophisticated. Yeah. So uh, our claim to fame is that at that stage we were twice the size of Amazon Web Services UK because it was two of us and one of them. <laughs> nice. And uh, and so, so so here you're signed up and you found the thing to do inside of the organization once you've knocked the door down and, and helped them uh, with their their email and collaboration capabilities and it starts to grow. It starts to grow. First full-time employee joins in February uh, 2010. And what is interesting over the next few years, I mean, we if you go back and look at the bookings and revenue, we had good Amazon months, not so good Amazon months. We had good Google months and not so good Google months where we were selling both propositions. And actually they were inversely correlated. So our revenue grew very steadily, but not always with the same platform. So having both, I think, really changed our business. And in the beginning, interestingly enough, you know, Google was more easy to understand and digest for organizations. You know, everyone knew they needed email, some way of collaborating, etc. Now the question was, you know, how do you do it? 
Um, so Google had more obvious traction early days, I'd say. And over time, we start moving people to Google and organizations say, so we have this thing called, if you remember this, Jeff, BlackBerry Enterprise Server. Ooh, that's almost a bad word these days. <laughs> so the good old Bez. And um, we, um, the customer then would say, so this is great. You know, we now shut down Exchange and or, or Lotus Notes, whatever we're running on premise. But if our data center or our on-premise environment sits in a cupboard, you know, we're a mid-sized architect firm here in London. If our data center gets disconnected for some reason, network power, we have email, but we don't have mobile email because our best is running. So what, can you do something about this? We were like, of course we can. We'll move that to Amazon Web Services. That's a problem yeah. you can solve. <laughs> well, exactly. And interesting enough, we, we gained a lot of Amazon clients early doors because of the move of Bess linked to Google Apps, which I think no one probably have even remember today, but that was a, a successful way of, of getting people introduced to Amazon Web Services and then for them to discover, hmm, wow, yeah. okay. I'll tell you, if I inject a funny story around the, the Bez move. So the way that it worked in practice was that in order to do the, 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 um, the migration and switchover, we would go to BlackBerry or from one of the service providers, get a temporary license key, reinstall the Bez in our Amazon Web Services using the temporary license key, migrate the users in it and switch the traffic from the old environment to the new, which was very seamless. It was very, very simple uh, comparatively. And then once it's up and running and you're confident, you take the original license key and just reapply them to the new environment. Simple enough. Now, the so, so it would seem. <laughs> so it would seem. And one of the big ones we did early doors was News UK or News Corporation UK. So they had about 6,000 users. The project went well. The switchover went well. And at the time, James Murdochs, one of the Murdochs who were running this, uh, was one of the 6,000 users of this best, even though I think he was based in the US at the time. And after three months, we get a phone call. It's a P1. The, the news called best environment is gone. And uh, we were running a managed service business at the time. So we were running Amazon Web Services environments uh, out of our Edinburgh office. And I, I remember the day very vividly because it was panic station, right? James Murdoch, no one can get their BlackBerry emails. And it didn't take as long to realize what had happened. We had forgotten to transfer, forgotten the, to transfer the license key. Details, so, details, they do matter. Details, details. Um, it was the first kind of, as a business, first proper big P1. So the P1 process that we created kind of on the fly that day yeah. and the documentation and how we go through it, et cetera, I, I think still lingers somewhere inside CloudReach, at least a version of. Uh, and we had to think on our feet, which is just one of those things, you know, when you start to build a business, these things happen, right? Yeah. And, you know, when going back and speaking to the client, who was a CTO at the time, was a guy called Ian McDonald, but maybe he was not CTO, but anyway, and Ian is currently at, at Microsoft. Uh, you know, I called Ian up and said, look, I'm really sorry. This happened. I know we had, I think, a couple of hours outage, maybe three at most. It wasn't that long. And I said, I think that, you know, we immediately put our hand up and say, we mucked up and you know, this didn't go to plan. And here's what we're doing. We communicated really well with the client throughout. And then the service was back up and running. And I guess I was being quite bold when I went back to Ian and said, 
you know, again, I don't think it's about mistakes and, and preventing them from happening because they're always going to happen, whether it's internal IT or the service provider. I think the way you respond and react is what marks you out as whether you're a good or a bad uh, supplier and partner. And luckily, Ian said, yeah, I agree. You guys did well. <laughs> Before we continue, here's some information on some upcoming events. Rackspace Technology remains committed to using our position as the global leader in multi-cloud to empower you through technology to deliver the future. One way we do this is through the Solve Strategy Series. The Solve Strategy Series is a monthly collection of global roundtable events happening throughout the second half of 2020. These events feature industry influencers, experts, technologists, and leaders covering a variety of topics, including cloud security, AI and ML, multi-cloud strategy, and cloud native enablement. These roundtables always have an industry expert as the moderator, like Cheryl Hung, the VP of Ecosystem at the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, or Jack Aldrich, author and global futurist, to name a few. And they are joined by a panel of experts in their fields to engage in thought-provoking and timely conversations. These events are free, but you do have to register. And if you miss one, they're available on demand. Just head over to solve.rackspace.com and click the link for Solve Strategy Series. And now, back to the conversation. So the business continues to grow um, in, on both fronts. But at some point, you hit an inflection point of it's time to focus on AWS. And so you spin off the, um, the, the Google piece of it um, so that you can focus more on, on what's going on in AWS. What was it about AWS? What was it about the, the market at that point in time that had you double down in that space? Yeah, I mean, I think Google would agree to this too. I mean, when Microsoft really weighed in with 365 and it was, wasn't maybe the greatest product at the time, you know, back in 2013, I guess it was there and thereabouts, um, they did really push hard and stopped Google in their tracks. I mean, I think if Google had another year or so to run with the Google Apps uh, kind of proposition and maybe invested a bit more aggressively, I think they would have caused Microsoft some real issues. But Microsoft came back very, very strongly um, at that time. And, and frankly, we, we therefore struggle as a partner as well, of course, to push Google Apps um, as a proposition. And fortuitously for us, the Amazon business really started taking off. And I think, you know, if you go back and look at the, you know, 2010, 11, 12, there was a lot of exploratory stuff going on. You know, we moved the first enterprise data center to AWS, you know, pure Windows platform out of a, a, a Geneva, Switzerland-based data center, very expensive real estate, uh, super successfully for a hotel group called Kempinski in, in 2012 and early 2013. And from that on, we kind of, from that point on, we, we kicked on and 13, 14, you saw enterprises starting to really pick this up beyond media and, and some of the really early adopters. And I think by 2015, it was clear that it's coming of age and large organizations, you know, we had started work with BP, the oil and gas business, and, and they were, I guess, drifting towards a real commitment to going big into uh, and using hyperscale cloud environments. And I think the signs were coming from all directions that this is truly going to take off now. So by early 16, you know, the decision is made that we're going to spin out and basically sold our Google business, which was a, an annuity recurring business uh, with a bunch of support contracts and licenses, et cetera. So that was completed in the summer of 2016 at the same time as the Blackstone Conversations get started late summer 2016 that eventually led to the point that we where we started the podcast 
Yeah. So you get to this point. Now, now some of the stuff we sort of glossed over along the way is, is this company that started, you know, in the UK is now all over Europe and it's now also over in the US. And you mentioned uh, earlier, you're at an $80 million kind of run, annualized run rate which is not an insignificant number and it's not an insignificant company. You got 250 employees and are in charge of driving at that point a, uh, an incredibly significant percentage of the revenue that's going into AWS. You're in that top tier of, of partner customer. And, uh, and it's at that point, like you mentioned earlier, that it's time to really to grow exponentially. It takes some pretty serious investment. So the, the partnership, the sale to, to Blackstone comes along. They won. Uh, obviously, there were others you were, you were talking to along the way. There's never only just one, especially with a company that was as successful as CloudReach at this point. And it puts you in that position where, you know, you're, 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 you're handing that baby that you've grown up over the past many years. Uh, and it's, and it's, ownership, literal ownership to another organization, it causes you to have to make some, some decisions as, you know, an individual, you know, when we, we spoke earlier, you mentioned that when you go through that process, PE, you know, you're generally in there three, four, five years, maybe. So are you committing for that whole ride in the, in the carry out, or are you committing to, for the transition for somebody else to then come in? Um, you know, your thoughts, what, what was going through your head at that point? Obviously, Look at look at LinkedIn in the history. We can kind of see what your decision was, but what was what was your thought process? What were the drivers? Yeah, I think that there are a few different things, right? I mean, at this point, to be clear, you know, some of the options on the table next to Blackstone, without mentioning names, were a complete sale, right? As as you can imagine, and that's truly handing it over, right? And it's it's it would mark the more of an end of a journey as as some. There are people out there maybe listening to this who've been through that as well. I mean, that, that really stops. Whilst with an investor, the journey continues, the, the, the company continues to exist as an independent entity, etc. So I think part of the reason was to see, you know, well, how far can this be taken as opposed to essentially just get assimilated into a much larger corporation? Um, so that was one of the decision-making points. And then at that stage, you know, and the, and the size and the, that you've achieved... The people who we're talking to were majority investors, right? Uh, with the size and, and, uh, and scale we were at, so the the other decision point there, of course, is you go in and you sell a majority. By definition, you lose control. You have a say, but you don't have control. And to that point, it was hundred percent control in terms of what was going on, and and that's. That's an interesting point, right? But I think what I, what I also point out to people is, you know, when you have a company with 30, 40, 60, 70 people, it feels like you are truly in control because it's so contained. When you have 250 people, you are still in control from a shareholder perspective. And I guess the company has been built in, I hate to say your image, but in the way you wanted it to be, to, to be built. But you're, you're now in the hands of lots of other people making decisions every day, as they should do, that are not your decisions, right? That you've hired people to make decisions. So yeah. you've lost control to an extent already, and you are more akin to what people call a professional CEO, like a hired CEO, as opposed to a founder CEO, which is a different, uh, different setup. And I think that, had, that point had been reached at that point. Uh, and that feeling will then accelerate as you know, over the next 18 
20 months, as with Blackstone's help, you know, we scaled the company significantly over that period by uh, organically, mostly to, to be clear, but also organic growth requires cash, which is what, what the Blackstone partnership brought, as well as lots of other things, of course, but you know, any investor would inject cash to, to enable that growth. Well, and then, um, so, so that was, you know, successful by, by every measure, but then, um, you come to a point, you know, at that sale point, you know, you realize you're going to, you give them a commitment, how long you're sort of in the game for, mm-hmm. um, but, it, but uh, along comes a time where you're not CEO anymore, uh, and are now, you know, kind of the player coach on the sidelines mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and it causes you to, you know, it's, that's, that's quite a shock from, you know, not eight hour days, 10 12, 16 hour days to, you know, go team. What's that like to go through? It's, it's strange, right? Uh, undeniably strange. And yeah, as you allude to in the, in, in the run up to the transaction, you know, there, there were discussion around the, you know, do, do you want to stay on, you know, how do you see the future and so on? And, and with three at the time, relatively young kids, I thought five more years of this and then another transaction, another five more years my children will probably, or our children, my wife and my children will be at university at that stage. And I, I missed the entire childhood. So there was a, um, an understanding that up two to three years is probably where I'm going to get to, uh, which ended up being slightly less than two in the end. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that was always in the, in the back of my mind. And, and of course, when that happens still, it is, a, it is a strange moment because you've been so, you know, invested in a project that might be may or may not be the one and only project you do of this kind in your lifetime uh, and the experiences the friendship built over time both internal and outside of the business so the emotional investment you made etc of course when you no longer run it that 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 changes overnight right and it's a it is a strange feeling equally as i said you know, at, at that stage we were you know, north of 500 people, etc. So the business had changed quite a lot as well. So it's no longer quite the business that you've considered yours compared to, let's say, 2012, 2013, 2014. You know, we took a first off-site outside of the UK in the autumn of 2012, going down to Lisbon in Portugal and so on. You know, it was a small business with 50 people. That's a very different beast um, to, to the business, you know, six years later. Yeah, but yeah. you haven't been uh, just sitting around at home with the, playing with the kids the whole time. Well, there's been plenty of that. It, you, you've gotten to, you know, as you look at LinkedIn and some of our conversations, I mean, you are very active in the tech world and taking your experiences and, and in some cases, your investment and, and putting that up and helping the next crew that's coming along in the startup space. Um, what's that been like? Yeah, it's, it's a real transition, right? Uh, in that from being an operational person that it's day-to-day in the business, driving, making decisions, um, you know, taking the rough with the smooth, you know, not everything goes to plan all the time as we know and so on, to being on the sideline as a cheerleader, as a coach, as a mentor. And, you know, software was always my passion all the way back from when I was a young teenager, early teenage years, you know, software was really, really at the core of my beliefs in CloudReach was obviously quite a lot of services involved. So going back now to, you know, today I do 100% software and some of which is not on LinkedIn, but more kind of behind the scenes stuff. And and I love it in, in many ways, but it's taken quite some time to make that transition because 
not being in control is, is a strange feeling and it's a different type of skill. You know, when people, I also know one of the companies where I'm a chairman is, is called Tyke and, and they had a, a virtual offsite the other week and they asked me to come in and speak for 15, 20 minutes and, and then take um, kind of a Q&A for half an hour, 40 minutes. Um, it was also an interesting experience and people kind of ask, what, what does a chairman do <laughs> in this case? If, <laughs> yeah. you are a, if you're an S&P 500, you know, NASDAQ, uh, FTSE 100 here in, in the UK, CAC 40 in France, whatever. Chairman there is due to kind of, for me, is kind of herding the cats and all the different shareholders and, you know, probably have quite stormy board meetings and um, a lot of regulatory stuff that you have to go through. And there's some of that, but more what I do is I get closer to the business. I work with founders and other people in the business more as a mentor and as a sounding board, as someone who has a, an independent outside view looking in, you know, sometimes you get very engrossed in your day to day when you're inside the business. So I think I can bring maybe different perspectives and of course experiences, right? I think one thing, if I may mention as well, on that point is I always say to people, I'm not here to avoid you making mistakes. You know, being an entrepreneur and being on the journey, making mistakes is absolutely part of that. It's so part of the game. Part of it's part of the game and you have to make them. Otherwise, I think it's an incomplete experience. Now, if you're about to literally drive off a cliff, I will tell you. <laughs> okay, so I will step in at that stage. But I'm not going to, uh, you know, try and save you every, every, every juncture. So, so that's, I think, how I, how I see my role. And it is, it is super rewarding having the ability to have insights into lots of different businesses. Well, Pontus, it has been my pleasure to get to reconnect with you. I certainly um, really enjoyed my time working with you over at CloudReach, where you built an amazing company uh, and had the good fortune to sell it and give you this platform for where you are now. Uh, but still be involved in it because you are still an advisor uh, with Black Blackstone for, for CloudReach. So you're not gone from it, but, uh, but you get to continue to coach and, and drive it along. So thanks again for being a part of this today. We look forward to uh, maybe catching up again in the future and hear what else you're working on. Absolutely, Jeff. It's been my pleasure. And, and thank you for uh, taking time to listen. This has been Cloud Talk. You can find Cloud Talk wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to check out more content from Rackspace Solve at solve.rackspace.com. What an amazing journey from rural Sweden to enterprise sales to building and ultimately selling an amazing company. So much to learn from these founders. Now, before I let you guys go, a quick reminder to make sure that you subscribe to the podcast. We put a new one of these out every week, and I'd hate for you to miss any of the content. I'm really proud of the work that we do over here on the program, and it couldn't be done without this amazing team that we put together. Now, if you have any feedback for us, please send an email to cloudtalk at rackspace.com. Now, here's what we have in store for you next week. We have AI models, deep learning models to analyze audio. So we're analyzing the different types of noises that the kids make, uh, which can be cooing, different types of bubbling, because those are key to the developmental state where the kid is at. So we analyze those with AI and combine them, the results with uh, the current research that is around of uh, the monsters that kids should be meeting at every month regarding language. 
And that's next week on Cloud Talk.